Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. We are in Jonah chapter 3 as we continue in our sermon series that we have entitled Waves of Mercy, Depths of Grace. And we've seen so far in the book of Jonah that the book of Jonah is a great work of literature. Jonah has numerous plays on words. He uses various rhetorical devices. The book has great structure and symmetry. We've seen that chapter 1 and chapter 3 begin exactly the same with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. Chapter 2 and chapter 4 begin exactly the same with Jonah praying to God. And last week we looked at that beginning of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 3. And we saw that in chapter 1 the word of the Lord came to Jonah telling him to go to Nineveh, but Jonah ran the other way. He he disobeyed God and ran away from what God told him to do, away from the presence of God. And then we looked at Jonah chapter 3 that we'll begin with today, and we see the word of the Lord again came to Jonah a second time, and this time Jonah obeyed. And we looked last week and said, what was the difference? What happened between Jonah 1 and Jonah 3 that led to Jonah's obedience? And we said that what happened in Jonah chapter 2 was that Jonah repented. Now, I know repentance is kind of a church word, and it's interesting. That word is never used in Jonah chapter 2. But we see a very clear picture of what repentance looks like. As we saw last week, that to repent means that we cry out to God, that we admit that God is right and I am wrong, That we admit God can fix it, but I cannot fix it. And we trust in what God has provided for our salvation. So as we get to Jonah chapter 3, it does have the word repent in it at least four times. But it deals with a slightly different question. Here's the question dealt with in Jonah chapter 3. Here it is. The question this dealt with is this. How does God respond when we repent? When we do those things, when we cry out to God, we admit that he's right, that we're wrong, that he's the answer, we're not the answer, and we look to what he has provided for salvation, how does God respond when we repent? Maybe you are here today, and you have never repented before. I'm glad you are here And I hope that as you hear the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God, you are led to turn from other things and turn to him. You are led to cry out to him and admit that he's right and that you're wrong. And admit that he's the answer and you're not. And you look to what he has provided for your salvation. But maybe you've been here and you have repented before lots of times. And then you've continued to mess up. You've continued to sin And after a while, you wonder, after messing up over and over and over again, can I presume on God's grace again? How does God respond to people who repent over and over and over again? Well, let's look at the text together and see how God responds whenever people repent. Let's look at Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear now God's word. I'm going to read just the first three verses, and we'll talk about it. Hear now God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in its breath. Now, we see here that Jonah this time obeys God, 
And he goes and preaches to these Ninevites. And we had asked the question before, what made Jonah run? Why didn't he want to go to Nineveh? And we actually get an answer to that today as we look at the first two verses of chapter 4. We're going to creep into that chapter. But you should know just historically as Jonah goes to Nineveh, that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And history tells us that at this point in time, about the 8th century B.C., that they were a violent, brutal, ruthless people. And that's just not what the critics were writing about them, okay? That's what they wrote about themselves. That's what's depicted in their own art. You can go and look at the art of the period, and it shows how they conquered other nations. They would just go in and level the place and kill everybody and burn everything to the ground. But they wouldn't just kill people. They would torture people. They would dismember them. They would decapitate them. And those were the lucky people. Because the ones that survived, they submitted them to cruel slavery in which they were, they were mistreated horribly. And so we understand why Jonah was hesitant to go to Nineveh and tell them that God was going to judge them. They might do that to him. The Assyrians were a mean, nasty people. Look at the message that Jonah has for them in verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, your translation may say overthrown. It may say overturned. It's an interesting word that Jonah uses there. And we've seen how Jonah plays with language and how he does this word play. And, and he's doing that here. He's saying that Nineveh will be overturned or it will be overthrown. And that same word is used of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And so that's what Jonah wants to see happen. He wants God to just rain down thunder and lightning and fire and just destroy the whole place and have Nineveh destroyed in that way. But this word translated overthrown or overturned, it can also mean to turn around. It's used sometimes of a chariot, that the chariot turned around. That it's used sometimes of someone's appearance, that their appearance is turned around or transformed. So this word can mean overthrown or overturned, but also to turn around or to be transformed. So while Nineveh, we will see, was not destroyed, it certainly does turn around. It is certainly transformed. Let's look at it and see how it happened. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Now you may have heard the Bible talk about putting on sackcloth. They believed God. We understand that. But what's this putting on of sackcloth? Maybe you've heard that before. In a minute, the king will put on sackcloth and sit in ashes. It was a, a way to express repentance or sorrow for what you have done. Sackcloth is a very uncomfortable, scratchy kind of material. Uh, probably the closest thing we've got is maybe burlap. But this was made of goat's hair, and it was uncomfortable and scratchy. And so you generally didn't make clothes out of it. You would make a burlap sack or a, uh, a sackcloth was used to make sacks, and it wasn't generally used for clothing. So to put it on and to wear something that's scratchy and uncomfortable, the symbolism is that I'm turning from my own comfort, that I'm giving up my own pleasure or my own desires for something else. So putting on sackcloth is a historic symbol of repentance. 
So they are repenting here, right? They believe God and they're putting on sackcloth. They're repenting. Let's keep going. Look at verses 6 through 9. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth. So he's repenting too. And he sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. They're going to fast. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So the king and his nobles repent. They call for all the people to fast and to repent and to cry out to God. So there's this call to admit that God is right, that they've been wrong, that only God can fix the problem, that they're not the answer, that only God can be the answer. And then I want you to watch verse 10. I want you to watch how God responds to these ruthless, brutal people when they turn to him. And here's why we're looking at it. Why is he making a big deal about this verse? Because it shows us the kind of God we serve. Jonah 3 and verse 10 gives us an idea or a glimpse of how God responds to people when they repent. Okay? So give your, if I've lost you, come back. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. How does God respond when they repent? When God saw what they did how they turned from their evil way. God had compassion and relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Some folks look at this and say, God changed his mind. Oh, no. God acted in a way that is consistent with his character. For people who are unrepentant, he does send judgment. He does send disaster. But for those who turn from their evil ways and cry out to him, God has compassion. And he does not send his judgment on those who call out to him and admit that they are wrong and that God is right. He doesn't rain down his judgment on those who repent. It's so interesting. You would think that at this point in the story, Jonah has gone and he's preached to the Ninevites. They've repented. They've turned to God. And you think the next verse is going to be, and so Jonah rejoiced greatly and went back home that the whole country has been, has turned to God. It's not what happens. Look at chapter four and verse one. It displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord. Listen to his prayer. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Do you hear what Jonah's saying? He's saying, God, those mean, nasty Assyrians, I wanted you to rain down your judgment on them. I wanted those who have such violence to receive violence. I wanted those who have been so mean and nasty to others to be treated in a mean and nasty way. 
But then Jonah said, that's just like you, God. I knew if I came and preached, I knew if they repented, I know what kind of God you are. Gracious, compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast. I knew that if they just so much as turned to you, that you would relent from sinning. That's why I didn't want to go. But hear what Jonah is saying. That the God of the Bible, toward those who turn to him, are, he's compassionate, and he's merciful, and he's gracious, and he's abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from sending disaster or calamity or judgment on those who turn to him. So I call you today to turn to God, to cry out to him. To admit that he is right and that you've been wrong in the ways that you've disobeyed. Admit that he is the answer and you're not. He can fix it. You can't fix it. And look to what he has provided for your salvation. Now you may say, listen, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things I've been involved in. That's true. I don't know. But I tell you, it can't be worse than these folks, right? It can't be worse than the Assyrians were the worst. And that's the point, that God shows mercy and compassion even to the worst, even to those who celebrate their wickedness. When they cry out to God and turn to him, he shows compassion and mercy. If you've never repented before, I call you today to cry out to him. Now, you may have this question on your heart. Maybe you've done that before. You have turned to God in the past. Maybe you've done that many times. But then you continue to mess up. Even though he's been faithful to you, you've been unfaithful to him. You have confessed and repented so many times. You come here to Redeemer Church and Sunday after Sunday you confess and repent. And that as you grow, you're aware of more and more sin in your life. And sometimes... Because people are so conditional. We've never seen a relationship where somebody finally just doesn't say, that's enough, you're out of here. We've never seen anybody love us like that. That we begin to say, how many times will God forgive? I've confessed and I've repented so many times. How does God respond if I've done all these things that I knew God didn't want me to do, even after I belonged to him? Well, let's look at how God responded to Jonah. Do you remember Jonah's story? If you weren't with us in Jonah chapter 1, we learned that Jonah was a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And Jonah had correctly prophesied some things in King Jeroboam II's court. God had spoken through him and used him as a prophet. He was a man of God. He was a spokesman for God. He was one seen as one who talked to God and heard from God and walked with God. And then Jonah received this word to go to Nineveh. And he disobeyed God. He walked away from God. He he ran from God. He ignored God. He denied God. He avoided God. He didn't interact well with the sailors and the captain we saw in in Jonah chapter 1. They evangelized him more than he evangelized them. 
And here in Jonah chapter 3, in verse 1, it repeats Jonah chapter 1 almost word for word. Do you see it? The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, the same thing. The great city and call out against it the message that I will tell you. Jonah uses almost the same words. Why? Because he's showing us that even for followers of God, those who have been disobedient and unfaithful to him, even after they knew better, that they blatantly disobeyed, Jonah is given another chance after he repents in Jonah chapter 2. The lesson is this. God is a God who gives another chance after you repent. So turn to God. His mercy does not run out. His grace is sufficient. It never ends. His steadfast love is abounding. And in Jonah 4, next week, we'll see how God continues to have compassion on Jonah. And he continues to extend his grace and his mercy. He continues to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love toward Jonah, just like God does to Nineveh. But notice, not only does God forgive Jonah, but God used Jonah. God gave Jonah another chance to be God's spokesman, to be used by God to change the world around him. And God used him that way, and he accomplished great things. The people of Nineveh repent. Listen, the lesson for us is this. That God not only loves broken and messed up people, that God not only accepts and forgives broken and messed up people when we repent, when we turn back to him, But God uses broken and messed up people who repent in order to accomplish his purposes in the world. God changed Jonah, and then through a changed Jonah, God changed the city. He changed the culture. He changed the society. Isn't that what we all want? Oh, listen to the news. Go online. Everybody wants this world to change. I've been on the college tour with my daughter, Sydney, boy, and they, the, all the admissions department run that. You want to change the world? Come here to our school. We equip you to do that. My daughter, Caroline, reads these, but Percy Jackson, right? It's always, he's going to save the world. We long for that. I hear a yes on Percy Jackson. Amen. All right. But it's all over the books and the movies and the TV shows that we watch, These heroic quests to save the world or to change the world against all odds. We dream of that. Why do we dream of that? Do you know why? Well, I guess it's because the media shows us all these stories and we just, well, yes. But why is that story a part of every Marvel movie, a part of the Lord of the Rings, a part of all these great epic stories that we look at? Why is that the story that's told over and over again? I will tell you why. Because changing the world is what you were made for. To change the world is why you exist. Oh, you're going to hear it in the graduation speeches coming up in a few weeks, won't you? This generation's not going to accept unfair inequities. 
We reject materialism and consumerism and racism and sexism and all the other isms. Then we grow up and we get cynical about making any difference in the world at all. And most of us eventually just give up. But when that happens, something inside of us dies. Isn't that the great problem of our day? There is nothing bigger than ourselves that we will live for and are willing to die for. Isn't that the big problem of our day? That There's nothing bigger than my own needs, than my own desires, than my own interests. And when I only live for myself, guess what? The world becomes a very small and insignificant place. Which is why we have so much hopelessness in the world today. All those who are more liberal... They want you to believe the great problem of our day is materialism or racism or sexism, the abuse of authority. And those things certainly exist in our day. And of course, conservatives want us to believe that the great problem of our day is immorality, of lawlessness, of disrespect for authority. And we certainly see that in our society. But I would submit to you at our very root Deep down, the great problem of our day is that we refuse to believe that there is something bigger than ourselves. Too many people believe there's nothing bigger than our own needs, our own desires, our own interests. And when we live for those things, our world becomes very small and things just don't really seem to matter much anymore. I must tell you, I'm compelled to tell you, that there is something outside of us that is worth living for, that is worth dying for. Our culture is asking the question, is there something like that out there that's bigger than me? Isn't there a power, a virtue, a truth that's bigger than my own needs and my own interests, which is worth living for or even dying for? Something that powerful can change the world. If you're here and you are a Christian, then you know, or maybe you just need to be reminded that there is a power, there is a virtue, there is a truth that can change the world. And we know because we have experienced that change within us, that power that led us to repentance in the first place, that power that is perhaps today leading you to repentance again, maybe for the first time. That power is the kingdom of God being born in us by the Holy Spirit of God. Can I tell you the story? Or maybe for those of you who have heard it, let me just remind you of the story of the kingdom. Do you remember? I'm coming down away from the notes, right? What's the story, the old story that we live for, that we die for, that we sacrifice for? It's for this kingdom. You see, this is my father's world. God created all things good out of nothing by the power of his word in the space of six days and all very good. God created this world with such beauty and dignity and diversity and creativity. There are so many beautiful things that God created, so many colors and shapes and sizes, so many things that we see, beautiful sounds that we hear. 
that we taste. God didn't have to give you taste buds. We could just take in food and process it. In his grace and his mercy and his creativity, he gave us taste. What an engineer of the way things work. But we only see vestiges. We only see those good things broken and messed up in the world that we live in. Why? Because men and women have not lived life the way God designed it to be lived. And as a result, shame has entered the world. Fear has entered the world. Blame has entered the world. All those isms that we talked about have entered the world. Consumerism, materialism, racism, sexism, all those things exist. Hatred entered the world. Pain, suffering, decay, death, all those things entered the world because of our poor choices. But God has remained committed to his creation. He has remained committed to making all things new. And we see that chiefly in the fact that God left the perfection of heaven and he put on flesh and became a person. And that person is Jesus And he lived the life I should have lived. And he died the death I should have died. And he had this earthly ministry where he pushed back the effects of sin and brokenness. That was the reason for the healing is to show that his kingdom is going to eliminate sickness and death. That's why he showed power over nature and storms is to show that his kingdom is more powerful than the forces of nature. That's why he cast out demons to show that his kingdom is more powerful than any evil you face. He even rose from the dead to show that he is conquering even death itself. And Jesus has ascended into heaven and now he continues that earthly ministry. Do you know how? Through you. And through me, our head is in heaven, but we are the hands and feet of Christ. And we continue his ministry on the earth, proclaiming that people should repent because the kingdom of God is near. And this kingdom is coming. Oh, and let me tell you, one day, the king is coming back. And he'll make all things new. Whatever makes you cry, the sin, the brokenness, the hatred, the oppression, all those things will be done away with. And we persevere in this day because we know that day is coming. And so we continue on doing the things that God calls us to do, even when it's hard. Because we see his kingdom, we have tasted the kingdom as we see it born in us, as we change, as we see people change, as God uses us to change wherever we live, work, and play. Listen. I have given my life to see that kingdom grow. I'm willing to sacrifice the things I want to see that kingdom grow. And if God wills it, I'm willing to die to see that kingdom grow. Let me ask you. Is there anything bigger than you that you're serving that way? Or are you just living to pay the rent? You're just living to pay the mortgage. You're just living to pay for that next vacation or your next vacation home. You're living to to pay for the boat or to pay for your next boat. You're willing to just make ends meet. Or are you willing to be used of God to see his kingdom grow, to make a difference in this world? Listen to me. God not only loves broken and messed up people, 
He not only accepts and forgives broken and messed up people who repent and turn to him, but God uses broken and messed up people to accomplish his purposes in this world. Turn to him. God changed Jonah, and then through a change, Jonah, God changed the city of Nineveh. He changed that culture. He changed that society. And I call you today to cry out to God, to admit that, that, that where he speaks, he is right. And where you disagree with that, you are the one who is wrong. Admit that he has the answers, that you don't have the answer, and trust in what he has provided for your salvation. And listen, God will change you. And then he will use you to change the world around you. Let's pray and ask God to do that in this place. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these are big, grandiose ideas. We dare to even dream them, let alone to speak them out loud. Because we're afraid of failure. That we'll feel foolish or look foolish. But, Father, these are your words. This is your kingdom. This is your command. And so I pray that you would come by your spirit and that you would empower your people, that you would help us to turn from other things and turn to you. That you would break the, the pride in our hearts, that we would admit that you are right and that we're wrong. That you would help us to admit that you have the answer and we don't have the answer. That you would help us to trust in what you have provided in your son. We cannot do this on our own. The only way that happens is if you come and work. Oh, and then, Father, would you, could you use us to make a difference in this world? We ask that you would, only because you have told us that it's possible, only because you say that you will. We come to you, and we humbly ask that you would use the people in this church in that way, and that you would come and do so for your glory. And for the good of this community, it's for Jesus that we pray these things. It's in his name. Amen.